Thank you for listening to the Green Majority Podcast. We have some really great guests today, and I really enjoyed today's show. I hope you enjoy it as well. If you'd like to continue to enjoy it and enjoy it even more, you be- can become a Green Majority member for as little as $1 a month. Everything helps. You know, We'd love it, $5, $10. Anything you could do helps out, helps us to expand our program and get better equipment. Very appreciated. You can become a Green Majority member at greenmajority.ca or go straight to the sign-up page at patron.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash greenmajority. Sign up today and enjoy the program. Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. It is live on Friday, August 26th, and I'm your host, Darren Kaster, here in the studio. Uh, Stefan Hostetter is still on vacation, as is some of our other staff as well, which is why I'm again, and hopefully for the last time, teching my own show here uh, at CIUT. So uh, no Alex, no Stefan, but we do have some other good friends who've come back to join us, both of whom have been on the show before and will be assisting me through today's program. Uh, first up will be Paul Dorr who's the author of The Walking Man and co-host of the Open Kwong Door podcast as well. Would you like to say hello, Paul? Uh, hello, Paul. <laughs> and then uh, as well in the rest of the show is Atiyah Jafar, who is, the climate ju- uh, who is a climate justice activist and also the digital organizer currently at 350.org. Uh, welcome, Atiyah. Hi. <laughs> so what we're going to be doing, uh, we have sort of a, uh, uh, a somewhat orderly Mm-hmm. Because Stefan's not here, so I'm like OCD. Uh, <laughs> somewhat orderly traipses through the news cycle. So what we're going to start with a little bit is a little bit about uh, one of my favorite uh, companies to yell at, just because they're so despicable, um, and it's also a non like carbon related, well, non directly carbon related story as well. Which you know we got to take shots at somebody else once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul's going to pick on Nestle a little bit, and we're going to start with sort of the general theme of water, and then Atia's going to uh, talk to us about some uh, North America. Uh, related sort of uh, general pipeline and carbon related stories as well. Uh, and then I'm going to be digging directly into in the final area of the program, I'm going to be digging directly into the recently released and immediately set on fire by everyone uh, BC carbon plan as well. And then I also have a very interesting story about somebody I have very mixed feelings about, which is somebody who's doing some interesting things in the oil patch, let's say in the technology uh, sector. And the fact that I'm simply saying that I'm conflicted about it should interest you very much as well. But without any more teasing, I'm going to now hand us over to Paul, who will lead us in our first section. Well, when I was looking at uh, all of the articles uh, that you sent us, I was thinking um, this one really sort of stood out to me, the one about uh, water and the idea. Well, first, let's maybe talk about the the article itself. It's from the National Post, everyone's favorite uh, national newspaper, and uh, the headline is Ottawa to renew permits for bottled water companies after outcry over costs. So you kind of go through the article, and a few things uh, stood out for me. Is first of all, they're taking water, so they're taking water out of the ground. And then they are putting it into bottles and they're selling it to us. And they are paying $3.71 for every million liters that they take out. Was that, was that a million with an M, Paul? Yes, that was million. <laughs> I had to go back and look at that a few times because I thought 
three point seven one thousand something. I thought it was more than three dollars seventy one cents. Every million liters. Now I had to look at this because I have to admit that I uh, went down to the store and looked at the the fridge and took out at a convenience store and took out a bottle of water because I couldn't remember five hundred milliliters is in a basically bottle of water. They're selling it for what a dollar, two dollars. I'm terrible at math, so I'm not even going to try and figure that out. They're making a lot of money on this, and well, th- th- we could we could round it to make it easy and say a million a million bottles uh, at a dollar is a million dollars. Yeah, right. So they're making a million bucks at the cost of three dollars seventy one cents. Right. So uh, can I? Am I wrong to say that this is basically our water that they're repackaging and then selling back to us? Uh, not at all wrong. Okay. You're, you're on point. So then the, the, the interesting thing is they have all these permits with uh, your, your friends from Nestle, for example. Um, and they said, we want to try and phase these permits out. So my question was, what does that mean? Why can't they just say, uh, no, we don't want to do this anymore? I don't know. I'm asking you guys. <laughs> It's uh, it's it's a I, I think the thing for me is that it's like one of those things where, you know, and I've I've done long, long rants about politicians before and where I think their heads are at when they do things. Uh, mm-hmm. I, t- I took a right strip off Kathleen Wynne's back a few few weeks ago, I think, for being a bit of a coward on a number of issues. Um, but I think this is one of those things where, like, you know, after you're in office or after you're just like part of the political process, uh, part of the political uh, infrastructure, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, for long enough, you start. There seems to be this sort of, and and you may actually have, you know, as a as a storyteller and having been involved with so many people's stories, this this idea of the ability of people to sort of like disassociate from things. And, and I really just think they've disassociated from it because as far as they're concerned, I say, okay, well, we're not selling this water currently. So anything we sell it for is more money. And then I can use that money to prop up my budget and, and avoid having to make you know, choices elsewhere. And I, I, I don't know. I think I've, the sad thing is I think that's me cutting her the benefit of the doubt that they're just not thinking about it rather than just being either completely corrupt, completely evil, or a combination of the both. But well, uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds like pissing off Nestle is not something that they're very uh, eager to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't understand what the hesitation is either. And I think, yeah, definitely it's like these close ties that corporations have with our politicians. Um, I think that's a that's a really big, big part of it. And, and do you – but do you also think that there is – on the political side of things, there's – they don't come out and say it, but there is also that thing of, well, we, you know, it wasn't us that kind of did this. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with this, but like just kind of passing the buck again, you know? Well, and it's, it's one of those things where like, <laughs> it's, it's the reason I both simultaneously wonder why, you know, you know, our show wouldn't be picked up like something like the CBC like, or, or not even me. Like this isn't about me, but it's like the type of questions we ask on this program aren't asked of people. They're so simple, but I also know the answer at the same time. But it's just like, you know, it's it's not complicated. You don't even have to go on the offensive. You don't even have to do any research. Mm-hmm. Just at when, you know, when the when the press person for for the Ontario uh, Liberal Party says, OK, we're doing this. Uh, you just take up your hand and say, you know, what is the benefit to the people of Ontario? Mm-hmm. I, I don't even think they could answer that question. I, I don't know what they would say. I like, uh, well, you know, what is it? It's going to lower the cost of water. No. Uh, is this going to reduce our, our limited resource available for citizens? Yes. Uh, 
is this allowing control of uh, is this more handing over of, of of stuff that's public to to private for the sake of profit that isn't going to go to canadians yeah i i don't even know what the right-wing argument for this would be other than you know beating of the chest and saying money good corporate good uh. well that's what i was saying yeah. is that why is there the assumption that that something like water that in this case has been turned into a commodity why is that just not even that's not even what they're talking about like that's not the issue is it's just well it, i think even in the article they they're talking about how uh you know when and and some of the other po- politicians are just they're they're cons- they're like well maybe they took a little too much or maybe they're t- cuz it's been a dry summer and i was like what is like there's no i'm always looking at what what is the larger discussion and to me, the way that it was definitely presented in this article, there was no larger discussion about, you know, that is is water is water a right or should we have to pay for it or should we just – should it be free? Well, I just – I actually just while, – while you were talking there, Paul, I came up with the right-wing argument against this, <laughs> which, I, which I'm going to now use, uh, which is – uh, you know, we've we've been we've been doing stories for the past like two years about massive water shortages in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ontario is blessed with a surprising quotient of the quote unquote renewable. That's obviously a complicated term in this case, but the renewable technically resource of clean, you know, fresh drinking water here in Ontario. Um, we could make so much more money directly selling it to states that need water, which is something that's already happening and is going to increase happening at orders of magnitude hundreds of times the price potentially mm-hmm. uh, or maybe not like maybe the same price but like you def- <laughs> the same price would be like the moral argument but guaranteed if i'm going to stick with my attempt at a right-wing argument here you could do you could do it for more but isn't this dangerous to put uh the control of something like water into the hands of a corporation because what if something uh, does happen in terms of renewable drinking sources and then we turn around and say well we don't want to do this anymore because we need to uh you know be more careful with this and they just can shrug their shoulders and say the price is going to go up now because the 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 need is is higher yeah absolutely yeah it's it's terrifying um and i think the commodification of water is something that there's a strong movement against that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's particularly strong in college campuses where now we're seeing different student groups pop up in campuses across the world that are saying, we don't want our campus to sell bottled water. Like mm-hmm. we should be, universities should be taking leadership and should be saying, no, we don't want to support these corporations that are actually basically just making money by commodifying a human right. That's mm-hmm. that's wrong inherently. And I went to school. I did my grad school in Guelph, which is just in southwestern Ontario. Um, and Guelph is actually 10 minutes away from a Nestle bottling plant. Um, and so literally the water that is in the fountains is the exact same as the Nestle bottles that are in the vending machines, right? And even at our campus, the, the group that was – there was a student referendum where students voted in favor of not selling bottled water on campus um, – and the university refused. They mm. were just like, no, we're going to continue doing this. We have uh, a contract that we've struck with Nestle. There's like definitely close ties between execs and Nestle and, uh, you know, board of directors at the school. And there's just strong resistance to phasing out the use of water bottles. And, mm. and it's ridiculous. Like, I think in the, the argument that has been presented by the university board is we want students to have options. 
<laughs> well, you know, it's that's uh, it's interesting because you mentioned the the plant in Guelph because then on the other side. So to me, this is another. Um, this could be a, a different kind of discussion, but. I went through the article at the National Post and it said all these things about what we've been talking about, and but didn't really, you know, uh, go put off any alarms or anything. It just said this is a thing that is happening. Oh, by the way, um, but then I moved over to uh, from uh, website the website Some of Us where there's a petition, and they mentioned that 3.6 million liters per day from that plant near Guelph is being pulled out. Of the of the ground, and they're applying for a ten year extension on this to just be able to keep doing what they're doing. And I was I just found it so interesting that when you moved over here, it was there was a little bit more of a we really need to pay attention to this as a you know as a society as people that are um, living here that we need to this is more important. This is not just a uh, you know. The National Post seemed to treat it as just, uh, this is just a story. We'll put it over here. It's not really that big of a deal, but it really is. And I, so I guess I'm just interested in how these things are portrayed and then sort of slipping over into the, the idea or the, uh, the, the idea of how we make people care about this stuff mm-hmm. because um, – you know, we t- I'm, I'm a storyteller. I try and see the how the narrative of, of all this stuff is being crafted all the time. And, I mean, this is water. Like, what do we have to do to to make people kind of care about this and say, hey, what is – we got to do something about this. Or we got to say – just say no to a corporation. Why is that a bad thing? Well, and the whole the whole economic argument for all this stuff, right, is that, you know, and, and this is what comes up in, in when we're talking about, like, oil and stuff like that or, or any uh, any of these other, you know, pro, uh, products. They're like, well, okay, well, this is, the, this is our economic system. If you don't like our product, you can, you can choose a different product, except that this doesn't apply here. This is, doesn't apply. There is no other product. You require uh, life. So this is a great time to stick in, uh, of course, and I've said this repeatedly on the show before, but I will, I'm, I'm actually prepared because I usually just say the CEO and I don't remember his name. I had a second to look it up today. So Nestle chairman Peter uh, Brabeck, back in 2013, a position they've stuck to, by the way. This was not something that they like backpedaled uh, five minutes after saying it because they realized how hideous it sounded. No, no, this is still their position. Uh, at least the, this is the chairman of the company's position, uh, is that water is not a fundamental human right well it so you're literally literally it's not an extension it is directly equivalent to saying that life is not a right Mm. that no one if you can't afford to pay you don't have a right to be alive uh and this is it's also tantamount to war profiteering right it's tantamount to selling arms to both sides of a conflict uh because and now now that may seem like a bit of a stretch to some people but think about it uh the the whole thing that you're doing is you're you're forcing someone to a position where they they have to buy your product and then and then increasing the the price to a point making such obscene profits uh and that the 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 obscene profits you're making directly contributes to the continuance of that problem, right? So the more water that Nestle buys up, the less there is that doesn't have to be paid for. And they're just buying out more and more and more and more control. And now you have no choice, right? Now, in this case, the war is the war to, you know, the war against your own death. Uh, but the it, the metaphor holds. In fact, it's, I'm not even sure it's much of a metaphor. It's, we're just talking about a sort of a simple, you know, find and replace of concepts. But it's pretty much direct. It's pretty much the same thing. Uh, uh, Atia, why don't we give you the last word on this and we'll go to break in a minute. 
yeah, I mean, there's not much to say after that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, it, for me, it's just appalling that they stuck by that position. I thought that they retracted a little bit or that he went on record being like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. This is what I meant. But the fact that the company and the individual have stuck, have <laughs> continued to be, be like, yes, water is not a human right is <laughs> just it's appalling to me yeah well it was yeah. sort of, it's like one of those tricky things where like he said he went back but then rephrased it and basically said the same thing basically, so i mean they yeah. they'll say that they stepped back from it but what he stepped back from was the specific language used not the position right um so yeah it's pretty terrifying yeah. uh, uh so you're uh, you're up next right after the break would you like to to tease your segment here before we go to music break uh, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, this is a good segue. I'm also going to be talking about water issues uh, and particularly um, the ways in which water and clean water in particular is threatened by the oil industry and how that disproportionately is affecting indigenous peoples across uh, North America or Turtle Island. Um, so first, uh, talking about the Husky oil spill in Saskatchewan um, and how it's uh, particularly affecting a First Nations community that's just 300 kilometers away from where the oil spill happened. Um, and next, I will be delving into um, the uh, the occupation, uh, the blockade of the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, that is happening right now just south in the United States um, and how thousands of people are showing up in solidarity with uh, the Lakota Sioux protesters. All right. So all that and more coming up on The Green Majority right after this break. You're listening to The Green Majority Environment Radio Program here on CIUT 89.5 FM on our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country and now into uh, the United States and internationally as well. Our fabulous friends over at rabble.ca who also uh, post the show and promote it for us as well. And of course, our podcast listeners. If you're one of our podcast listeners, you also get to look forward to our bonus show after the air portion of the program. You can look for all that and more as well at greenmajority.ca. But now we're going to go to the tragically hip New Orleans is sinking. I couldn't resist. All right, we are back. You're listening to the Green Majority Radio Program here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, here in studio as well with Paul Dorr and Atia Jafar. And it is Atia's turn to take the wheel, as it were. So why don't I just hand it right over to you? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I wanted to start off by talking about... Um, about the James Smith Cree Nation, which is nearly 300 kilometers away from the source of where uh, the Husky Energy Pipeline spill happened um, on July 21st. Uh, it released up to 1570 barrels, roughly 250,000 liters of crude oil and other toxins into the North Saskatchewan River. Um, and First Nations, uh, such as the James Smith Cree Nation, have noticed that it's been... Um, really, really impacting wildlife. Um, it's completely changed um, the the composition of the water near their community. Um, and it's prompted an emergency, uh, a, an emergency with regards to the threat on drinking water uh, in several municipalities, um, w- which means that there are strong restrictions on, on access to the water and drinking the water that's uh, downstream of the spill. Um, it's also killed more than 150 animals. Um, and right now, federal and provincial authorities have launched an investigation. Um, so the James Smith Cree Nation is a community. It's about 1,600 people. They're about 80 kilometers east of the province, um, east of Prince Albert. Um, and they are definitely not impressed by Husky's response. And in particular, um, Husky Oil has hired in order to actually investigate um, the outcomes and um, the impact on drinking water. Um, Husky has hired a 
a, 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 a basically um, an environmental assessment uh, company that has a really, really bad reputation. So this company is called the Center for Toxicology and Environmental Health, um, and they have a pretty, pretty bad reputation. Um, they were hired by BP after the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, um, and uh, when the, after they were hired, the Times reported, the Times launched this uh, this piece on this particular company talking about how they had a really, really troubling pattern of repeatedly siding with industry and really under-reporting the impacts of a particular environmental disaster. Um, and uh, after Katrina, they were hired by a few uh, industries as well uh, to really uh, assess the impact. And um, when they were hired by, I think it was a, it was an oil company or um, they were they were basically uh, investigating after Katrina the impacts on soil and one of their employees was found on video um, smearing a soil sample against uh, a pavement in order to dilute the toxins. So this was something that they were caught on video doing and the Times is reported on it and uh, the leadership in this company is actually um, when they were interviewed about this they were like oh no no that article it doesn't matter it was a green article whatever that means it means, so it means it the, the report was printed on recycled paper yeah, yeah so we can't trust that <laughs> also can i just while i'm yeah. busy interrupting you can i just point out the irony of like how dirty the sample has to be that wiping it on an asphalt surface is going to be <laughs> clean, is going to diffuse it yeah yeah it's 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 ridiculous so yeah so this is this is the company that is investigating the impacts on the water so needless to say uh communities like the james smith cree nation are not impressed at all um so so what's happening here? What are folks' thoughts? Well, it's, it, 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 what's interesting is uh, one of the things that we've been uh, following on the program, obviously, we've been making a more of a concerted effort to, and it, it really has been, it's been made easy for us because it seems like a lot of sources, at least in Canada, are paying more attention to the issues of First Nations and Indigenous people. So uh, we've, we've been, as we've been able to get more information, we've made a concerted effort to, re- to report on it more. And it's, it's really, really interesting. Kind of, it's, it's, it's done sort of a predictable thing, which is to bring out both the best in some people and the worst in some others, which is that for a lot of the sort of climate and environment-minded folks uh, that were not already attuned to those particular issues, uh, it has increased awareness. So I think there's been a net gain uh, as far as the struggle to find the right word here that i'm thinking of but the uh say the uh, maybe political leverage with the public anyway even if not the politicians uh of those issues so that's good and it has also brought out you know some pretty hideous uh people as well to come out and sort of be racist and say other horrible and terrible things but i think the net the net gain here is that um we are seeing a, a much increased coverage of these issues so i have greater hope these days that uh, this sort of outcry and this sort of these sorts of reports will stick um, because there's it's just sort of in the news and I, and I I hate that it has to be that way but it but it is sort of just the reality of the situation so um, I, I have a, I have a little bit of hope that this is uh, that we are, we're going to see increased uh, redress of these issues uh, just because there's such a spotlight on it right now uh, and I hope that spotlight continues obviously but we can never be sure of that right the the media and the public are fickle so let's let's use the weight while we've got it I don't know what do you think Paul. Well, I was going to ask a, a stupid question, if that's okay. Please. Mm-hmm. Um, this company, this assessment company that you were talking about, that sounds terrible, uh, <laughs> was hired. Is that – how does this work? Can Cannot politicians come in and say, well, we're going to, we're going to bring in our own third party? Or like where are they – who gets these people involved? Obviously, the industry does if they're going to be kind of um, saying – 
backing up, uh, saying it's not uh, the impact isn't that great, or or whatever their their uh, their result is. But who who how do they come into play? Is I guess what I'm asking. Yeah, that is a that is a good question. <laughs> um, so I think that. Uh, when a company is so clearly responsible for the impact, they have to then take the responsibility for financing the cleanup, for mm. financing the assessment process to figure out how how dirty is this water and how clean can we get it and like what have what has been the impact of the cleanup efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it's Husky Oil that's, that has the burden of doing all of that. And so they get to spend money on contracting a company to do that. And of mm. course they're going to hire the company that is under reporting impacts that has, you know, like that has a, a reputation that is infamous, infamous for doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm, I'm actually, I think and th- these issues are, are inaccessible for a reason. I think we're not, there's a reason why it's so complicated, why it's so difficult for us to figure out what is the line of accountability? Mm. Where does the government step in? Are they doing an assessment as well? Um, so from what I understand, there is a provincial and a federal investigation. Um, I don't know if the, the, if the province and the federal government are hiring different agencies to, yeah. do, the, the, to do the assessment, if they're hiring different companies. Um, from from my faith in the government of Saskatchewan, <laughs> mm-hmm. I would say probably not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Federal government, I'm not so sure. But uh, yeah, but apparently Husky is reporting that they've cleaned up roughly 47% of the shoreline. So are they making these judgments based on what this company that they've hired is telling them? Because if, if they're making that claim and the government is trusting them to make that claim mm-hmm. since they're responsible for cleanup – I'm not sure how trustworthy that is. Yeah, and yeah. A, and a lot of the cases. I mean, this is a this is an excellent uh, uh, way to answer your question with one of my favorite expressions, Paul, which is two words uh, that are just beautiful together, which is plausible deniability. Uh, the the a lot of the ways when people say, well, the, you know, there's you know, when we talk about oh, there's loopholes, or we're, we're going to get to the BC uh, climate plan in a minute, which could be read with qu- quite a heavy degree of. Uh, naivete uh, to be like, well, what's wrong here? It sounds like they're doing all sorts of neat stuff. Those are the those are the types of loopholes that these companies make sure get into these agreements um, to cover their butts, and the politicians let them do it because a politician largely uh, is concerned with the optics or how they can spin something rather than the reality, right? So they'll be like, okay, well, we're going to pass this really harsh, you know, thing where you guys have to do all this reporting and you have to do all this stuff, you have to do this, you have to do that, um, and the fine detail says though is that you know, and oh, and they and they spin it as a positive. The and we're not not going to charge the taxpayers for it. The companies will have to pay for it. Great. What that really means is the government is going to say, okay, you know, if you get caught and and you and you get caught getting caught, uh, then you're going to go do some research. You're going to send us a report, and then we're going to hold that report up to the press and say, here, look, we did our due diligence. Blah 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 blah. Uh, and what it does is it allows the companies to to the degree of their morals, which I use very loosely, uh, and their uh, ability to fudge this information. And it allows the politicians cover to say, look, well, this is the report. You know, we don't know any better. They are the ones that did the report. And sort of everybody gets sort of like an easy pass. And unfortunately, that's all too often how it works. Everybody's just covering their butts. Well, I, uh, I, you know, I don't want to think that there are, uh, there's a back room somewhere where people are all all figuring this out. But when you went through all of the, the, the beats of the story, of the uh, what happened, there was, a, there was the spill, and then like all the effects that it was happening, and then they hired this company, and then this is how it's going. It's so neat. It's such. It's so. It's like well, 
this is it's like you're you know what you're saying is there are these things in place that come into play when inevitably something like this happens and why is it you know why can't we change that yeah well and what happens <laughs> yeah. is is it sort of creates this it, it, it creates this thing of making the person who's sane look like the crazy person, which is that after all of this gets reported and, you know, people like the National Post who will report it, you know, as some drab, well, here's what happened because here's what the people we talked to said happened. Uh, it, it, it increasingly it increasingly makes the, you know, when the company says something, the government backs them up and the mainstream media reports it, you know, something they've been hand, a piece of paper they've been handed and turn around and read it as if it's facts. Now you have a major corporation, a government, and the, and the major news agencies saying that something, you know, the sky is green, uh, and the environmentalists come out and say the sky is blue, and now they look like the crazy ones. And so everybody that wants to believe, oh, right, to a certain degree, everybody wants to believe things and are, and are very willing to deceive themselves to let it be true. And so all the people that, you know, don't want to have to, don't necessarily don't believe in climate change, but don't really want to have to do anything about it, or don't really want to have to change the rules because they kind of like the way they are, uh, to say, okay, look, now you're just being crazy. Look, every, they did this, this is, what else do you want them to do, right? You're being the extremist. You look at all this work we're doing and it's never going to be good enough and you guys are just crazy so we could ignore you. And that's, that's the reality. And the thing is that they're not actually releasing their data publicly. So they're collecting data on the impacts of the spill, on how effective the cleanup has been. This data has not been released publicly. So there is not that kind of degree of accountability where people can't be like, okay, there was a spill. There is no possible way that we could have reached this level of cleanup in such a short, short amount of time. Um, all, all that is happening is them saying, oh, we are, we've cleaned up 47%. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the number that they're giving. They're not actually telling us, okay, well, like, how do you actually what is your what was your method how did you make that judgment and also what what do you consider to be clean yeah um, define so clean is really are, important yeah, yeah. What, <laughs> what do you define can you will your ceo drink from this river um and uh, they're also they're not mentioning uh the james smith Cree nation on their website at all they're not actually recognizing the communities that have been impacted um but supposedly they are going to meet with the james smith Cree nation and the federal one representative from the federal government and one representative from the provincial government will meet with them as well. But yeah, like you said, it's a very perfectly packaged story. <laughs> um, I guess with the oil industry, um, so when I was in grad school, one of the things that I was really interested in was this concept of agency capture. And uh, that's the academic term used for when um, the agency that's meant to regulate a particular industry becomes captured by the industry itself. Mm. Um, and so I was really interested in writing a, a paper on the impact of um, – so basically agency capture with the oil industry. So how the oil industry has really captured the agencies responsible for regulating it. Um, and when I was talking to my professor about it, pitching this, my professor turned to me and she was just like, you know, with with the oil industry in Canada, I wonder if it's more a question of government capture. It's not just an agency that's been captured. It's not just the agency meant to regulate. It's not just Environment Canada or Natural Resources Canada. It's really the entire government and all facets of it have been captured by the industry that it's regulating. And I think I, I found that that really has resonated where it's just like we allow them to get away with so much and more and more every time, even though we know what the trend is. We know that pipelines inevitably spill um, and uh, we know that we we cannot trust these companies to do the cleanup or to make, you know, make statements about what a, what a 
proper and effective cleanup process has been. Uh, so yeah, that's that's something to think about, and I think kind of like also relates to this this conversation that we were having with, about Nestle as well. Is like why is the government so reluctant to step in? Like we would think that these regulators would take more responsibility, that there would be more accountability. All right. Well, we're we're nearly at the end of the segment. I want to at least let you at least introduce the Dakota thing. I just a really qu- a quick one on 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 that just to to tie it up. Um, yeah. Yeah, so speaking about oil spills, maybe taking like more of a preemptive approach, uh, like the Lakota Sioux uh, Nation, um, also known as uh, the the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. Um, so basically, um, this has been going on for a couple of months, but over the last few weeks, um, this has really uh, become something that's really picked up. Um, so the the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe has been uh, suing federal like regulators for approving the oil pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, which would uh, which is a three point eight billion dollar project. It was it would carry um, uh, it would carry half a million half mil- half million barrels of crude oil daily from North Dakota's oil fields through South Dakota and Iowa to an existing pipeline in Patoka, Illinois. Um, And right now what's happening is that uh, First Nations uh, from this nation are are blocking the pipeline. Um, So they've blockaded it. uh, And uh, recently they've had a victory where um, they've stopped construction on the pipeline. Um, And uh, they've been... Uh, they've been taking action for a few months now, but over the last couple of weeks, thousands of people have joined them. At this point, it's 1,500 people are there. Um, the construction on the pipeline has stopped. Uh, people are coming coming into this uh, this camp from all across the country, all across the United States. Um, they're also coming in from Canada now. Um, and uh, a, a number of other First Nations have shown solidarity and shown up. And there's also a lot of, you know, settler um, allies that are there showing solidarity. So really showing us that... Um, that that action can be taken to kind of prevent the disasters like the husky oil spill from ever taking place and and direct action is getting us there and also the leadership of first nations that are defending their right to to protect the land their right to defend the water um yeah so it's it's very inspiring work and uh definitely sending a lot of love and solidarity to the people that are out there and it's it's an important to note as well the canadian angle here which is that um this is um you know, in, in many people see this as simply the alternative to having, you know, making up for the failed Keystone XL. Uh, it's uh, and it does involve Enbridge. Uh, so, you know, same companies, different pipeline. It's only seven kilometers shorter or seven miles shorter, whatever at this, you know, for the scale we're talking about, that's an irrelevant difference. Um, and so, I mean, this is just, this is sort of what we're talking about is like, oh, okay, we know it, this huge fight. Obama says, no, okay, fine. We'll just call it something else and move it three miles east. Uh, it's the same fight. It's the same fight, and and I'm and I'm I'm sorry to say that I'm I'm as though I'm so much encouraged by all the uh, by all the fighting that's happening locally. Uh, we aren't seeing the same sort of giant monumental tidal wave of resistance that we had to the Keystone to sell, and I think that's because you know we, after Keystone got won, we've now we you know you know what I mean by we <laughs> sort of the movement generally as this amorphous complex you know non single natured thing uh, sort of have moved on to other things, not away from pipelines, but it's, there there isn't the same level of resistance, and so I don't. I don't know what will ultimately happen. It could be possible that Obama steps in again. It could be possible a bunch of other things happen, or this could be a news item for 36 hours. They arrest all the First Nations people, and then you know this goes through. Uh, and I think we'll have to wait to see. So I, I agree with you that it's hopeful, but I, I do I have some reservations on my hope on this one, unfortunately. Yeah, and we'll see how the the lawsuit goes as well, because right now they are challenging the approval of this pipeline. So it, you know, 
and, and I think what they're saying is, well, we can't continue building it if there is a lawsuit right now that's challenging the approval in the first place. Uh, so that's an important point as well. Um, yeah, so I just want to end with talking about this this really inspiring chant that I saw because there's been a lot of great footage of this blockade. So if you get the chance, I would definitely recommend the footage that's up on Facebook. Um, AJ Plus has been covering the Dakota Access Pipeline blockade. Um, but uh, the people there that were resisting were chanting, we can't drink oil, keep it in the soil. And I think that's what it comes down to is the water and uh yeah, no matter how much money oil produces, in the end, we cannot drink it. And w- the most important commodity of all is the water and, and drinking water. So really, you know, I think as a society, we really need to be shaken up a little bit to recognize what is important. Right. So, Well, forgive forgive the pun, uh, everyone, but uh, the, the show has probably one of the better flows than we've had in a while because that also directly links into my story when we come back, which we'll be talking about uh, BC's climate plan and the absolute sham uh, that that has become. Uh, however, we're going to go to an, yet another quick music break. This time uh, it's going to be, and, and I did warn everybody when I don't have other people here producing the music, we do have, have dance music. So we had Tragically Hip. We're going to now do a remix of Lana Del Rey for our second music break. We'll be back to talk about BC's carbon plan. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, and we'll be right back. All right, we are back. You're listening to the Green Majority Radio Program, which you might not, if you just tuned in, you may not have thought so because we don't usually play dance music, but I'm in charge this week. <laughs> Your host, Aaron Kaster, here and also joined by Paul and Atia, who are going to now assist me in, uh, well, I don't know, I was going to say shredding the BC carpet plan, but that's already been thoroughly done by just about everybody. So I'm just going to inform you of other people's shredding. Uh, so this was a long overdue plan by the British Columbia uh, government. Uh, several months passed when they promised they would have something. Of course, uh, BC was uh, years ago heralded as one of the leaders uh, on this as some of the early adopters of, of many policies, including a provincial carbon tax, uh, one that uh, has been largely uh, you know, if you if you're talking politically, if you're talking voters, uh, that sort of depends when you poll them on it. If you're talking to uh, economists and and climate folks, though, uh, a, a very successful plan that that is only weakened by its weakness. Um, so there was due for some gear up. A uh, number of recommendations have been had. Many uh, big name and I would say very legitimate people. Although I, I've I've disagreed with Sapporo Berman on a few issues over the years. Um, she's definitely the real deal as far as she knows. But she's talking about and she's definitely you know definitely we're all on the same side so i would uh, i agree with her far more often than i disagree with her uh and was one of the uh, people that was um now it appears after the fact window dressingly included in this advisory panel uh because the advisory panel was uh uh, essentially resolutely ignored so and and it was very strategic the way that they went about it i i wonder if maybe and and maybe uh, atea you have uh, some insight on this but uh I wonder if maybe they weren't sort of expecting to be so sort of thoroughly sort of flushed through, like so thoroughly, uh, not torn apart, but like so thoroughly investigated because, which I find very surprising because A, it's 2016 and there's the internet, uh, but also just with the number of people that really, really care about this issue, especially in BC, but in, in Canada in general, that it sort of feels like they didn't think they'd get caught to a degree because what actually happened was they accepted, so there was, a, I don't have the number in front of me, it's here, it's somewhere else in the article, I'll find it in a minute if I need it, but um, there something like 27 or something recommendations or 23 or 21 or something like that, and they essentially agreed to part of all of them so if you're reading like the story in the national post again and we're just picking on the national post today um 
you know, you could very easily write an article saying, wow, look at all the legendary stuff that they're doing. But they essentially, on every single one of the recommendations that they took, they took away all of the meat of it so that basically none of them are meaningful. So what I'm going to start with, I have some more notes and I'm going to transfer into some conversation about how this is actually on a different article on from Desmog blog. Right now I'm referring to a National Observer article, all of which, of course, is always listed on the website for your own reference, about how this is affecting the solar industry as well. But just to run through it, here's some of the uh, planned changes. So uh, developing a strategy to reduce uh, methane emissions. So let me stop you right there. <laughs> uh, the, this culmination of our plan. So we, I have a paper due, Atia, uh, and the paper was due uh, two months ago. And I handed it in two months late. And the, and the opening section of my, of my paper for my university class says, uh, I'm going to create a plan for this paper. <laughs> yep, that's basically it. We're not going to stop emissions. We're going to develop a plan. Step one of my plan for becoming a millionaire is to develop a plan for becoming a millionaire. That would have been a great commitment 30 years ago. Yeah. 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 When we first found out about climate change. Or like the day they said they'd come up with a plan. Yeah. Uh, okay, so that's that. Uh, reducing methane emissions very important. So this, this we're already you're already getting the sense of where this is going. Uh, you know, the thing that they imply that they would like to do maybe at some future point under very unspecific terms is a good thing. So a very very naive reading of this would sound good. Second one on the list: introduce incentives to encourage companies to convert their vehicles to renewable natural gas. This is a theme we're going to hit on a few times, so I won't hammer on it too much now because I have several more opportunities in the in the list of seven or eight more things. Uh, but there's a theme here you'll see running where. Uh, essentially what the BC government has decided that they're going to do is uh, A, not meet their targets, but B, to the degree to which they are, is all about trying to influence consumers. So what they're saying was, as a government, all of the things that we have the most ability to do the most things, because we control the infrastructure, we control the taxes, we control all sorts of stuff. But we're not going to use any of those tools. What we're going to do is uh, to to influence the people with, with the most uh, ability is the, the most portion of the problem. What we're going to do is we're going to put all the onus on individuals. Uh, so this is a theme you'll see running. So instead of, um, you know, encouraging, uh, instead of mandating that companies do this or that, or instead of putting, you know, strong financial incentives that are basically mandating, but it's sort of like, here's your path to adjusting with this. Here's how you fit this into your business model. The type of regulations these companies have been asking for for years so that they can deal with it. Stefan loves coming back to this thing about how uh, uh, coal companies were begging to be regulated because they, under, without regulation, they knew they'd just cease to exist. And that's exactly what happened in Ontario. Uh, They were like, please regulate us so that we can work your regulations into our business model so that we can continue to exist. Mm -hmm. BC did not decide not to go this. We're going to ask them nicely to please eventually maybe someday convert their vehicles to renewable natural gas. There's a key phrase. Renewable natural gas. All right. Still climate change gas. Uh, So natural gas gas is actually in BC. It's been defined as clean energy by the government. Which is important to note as we go forward here, because they, they like to use the word clean, and that's very important to keep yeah. that in. So now, thank you. That perfect. Number three, expand its clean energy vehicle program. Again, definition is very important here. What do you mean by clean? I might even ask you what you mean by vehicle at this point. I'm so skeptical <laughs> of everything else you've written. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that, isn't that also kind of vague that they're just going to expand it? What does that mean? What, larger than before. More than one. Okay. Uh, there, I think there's a little math symbol for that, right? Greater than one. <laughs> right. Great. Or greater, greater than zero might be more might be more fair. So expand its clean energy vehicle program to encourage greater use of zero emission vehicles and increasing point of sale incentives for eligible vehicles. So once again, we're going to put the onus on individual consumers. 
support more charging stations for electric vehicles and develop so, uh, regulations so local governments can require that new buildings can install in uh, adequate charging facilities. So, great. I actually like this one. But when this is on your list of things you're going to do to solve a massive problem, um, you know, that's like telling me that this, you know, the steak I didn't order is going to have a really nice sauce on it. Love the sauce. I didn't order steak. Uh, so <laughs> improve your trans- uh, the transportation network through, B- uh, through its BC uh, on the move program, a 10-year plan that includes increasing the number of BC transit buses that use compressed natural gas and expanding public transit to reduce congestion, particularly in Metro Vancouver. So very big focus on vehicles, which again is a good thing if that was in addition to other really, really strong stuff. Uh, but not only is that insufficient, it also by not doing these other things, by not having a stronger uh, tax on carbon, you also neuter the effectiveness of all of these initiatives. So you're, you're voluntarily shooting yourself in the foot. Uh, so we're now, we're almost done here. I'll just get through the last three and then we'll sort of have a little discussion about this. So increased tree planting. So this is, this is like my favorite head bang on the wall one, because that's like, we talk about low hanging fruit. That's the fruit that's been like rotting on the ground for three days. You haven't done that. That's part of your, your plan. Um, and, and something I wondered, but I'm actually not researched enough to make a, a strong claim about, but I, I wonder as well, um, you know, because of course the, with the pine beetle, uh, problem, if that's not even a, like pointless, like are these, you know, pine beetle resistant trees, what's your plan for dealing? Like, is this a lasting thing? Have you calculated this Did, based on the other thing? I'm really skeptical that anyone thought how to actually do any of this through. And if any of this means anything, uh, almost done here, require all electricity acquired by BC hydro to be renewable or clean coming right back to Atia again. Again, what do you mean by clean? Uh, if you're switching everything to um, natural gas, better than coal, sure. But we have other options, don't we? Yeah, and natural gas also releases the most potent greenhouse gas, which is methane. So, I mean, it's not it's not clean by a long shot. <laughs> and uh, I think the the most important thing to recognize about the BC government is that they are they're a liberal government by name. But they are a conservative government in practice. They're the most right-wing government in BC's politics. So BC doesn't have an official conservative party. Their liberal party is their conservative party. And um, with certain policies, they're even more right-wing of the Harper government. So I think, like, like see this as a climate plan released by the Harper government. Like, they're not trying to impress anyone. They're not surprised that environmentalists like Sapporo Berman are critiquing them. They didn't th- – their intention with this plan was to just have – something pretty a report to point to action was never the objective because if action was the objective the bc government wouldn't be building a new fossil fuel industry from scratch which is what they're doing with the lng industry they're building a new fossil fuel industry in bc for no reason and that is an industry that we just cannot afford to build if we want to act on climate change because climate change tells us that we should be keeping fossil fuels in the ground phasing back the extraction projects that are already in place, not creating new ones. We're, we shouldn't be expanding industries like the fracking industry in BC. Um, so, yeah, it just just very much does seem like it's all about. <laughs> it, it, you really need to know what they're talking about when they when they use certain words because the words might sound pretty, um, but they don't actually translate to anything actionable, especially when when uh, the definition of clean is so distorted, when there are actually no targets for reducing emissions. There's only, uh, there's only a desire to have a plan, a strategy <laughs> moving forward. Yeah, and, and this yeah. is where like, the, the, the theme really starts to come in. I'll just shotgun the last two, and then we'll, we'll come back to sort of discussing them. But this is like, really, like my spidey sense started going bonkers after reading just this short list because provide more incentives for marine vessels to be fueled with cleaner burning liquefied natural gas. So there's 
two things in there that got my attention. One of them was, okay, well, the marine vehicles you're concerned about are the tankers you want to move oil in. So not impressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that's like hiring vegans to operate your slaughterhouse. That's kind of doesn't really make any difference. I'm sure that makes great PR, but it's, it's silly. It's, it's, it's actually just silly. And then introduce policies to encourage and develop the building, uh, the buildings that are carbon neutral. So a lot of emphasis on infrastructure, which is long term, a lot of en- uh, emphasis on promoting natural gas, which uh, if we assume that every time they say clean, but not natural gas, we assume they mean n- natural gas. Um, th- yeah, I mean, it re- it, I, it, my immediate thing was like, who who is in that government that's about to be or formerly from a natural gas company's board of directors? It would like it just reeks of it, and so that's what that's sort of one of the things that surprised me. So let's come back to sort of the environment uh, the reaction to this, as you said. You know, nobody's surprised, um, and I, I don't know if she was just doing it for effect. But the reason I'm not sure if she was doing it for effect or if she was actually surprised was, you know, Sapora's so uh, tweet sent out a tweet storm right after, essentially after this got published, and she was furious and she sounded shocked. Now I don't know if she was just phrasing it if she was shocked for emphasis or if she was actually shocked. But one of my one of the areas where I have disagreed with her in the past that she seems far more not trusting but like i i'm not sure i have a better word for than trusting but like she seems to th- she seems to think that if you ask them really really nicely uh and keep repeating the same thing you've already said that eventually these people will stop being greedy and not care about the the climate and so i i'm i'm assuming she's not actually surprised um but the fact that she seems surprised surprises me like why even play it that way <laughs> yeah i mean it could definitely be you know the narrative because often um you know we want to have the narrative of like we don't want to come out and say that we're disappointed in the government before they've even done anything because then that kind of turns a lot of people away um i think it's like sometimes more powerful to bring people there themselves to the point of disappointment so to start off saying well we have hope that the government will do the right thing because they want to make a climate change plan but get them but but like saying saying that it won't be effective before it's even announced is probably not the great way to actually bring more people on board. Um, So getting people to a point where they're disappointed themselves and then expressing that disappointment with that large majority of people is is one approach. Um, But I think with Sephora Berman, um, her background is with uh, the forestry movement. Um, And she's quite famous for being part of of this deal that was struck. Um, I think this was with the the Great Bear Rainforest. Um, she was part of that deal that was struck between the government, the industry, and environmental groups, where they all reached an agreement about how um, about how to re- reduce deforestation um, and it really just like placing uh, really strong uh, restrictions on on how much of of the Great Bear Rainforest in BC could experience deforestation. And so that was a really, that was a landmark deal. And I think when you, when you start off at that place, then you think that there's a lot of hope for, for agreements being struck between the government and industry. Um, Yeah. But. All right. Well, I, I'm actually sorry. I was actually preparing to, to go to a further point, but I was having so much fun with that. We're actually out of time. So we'll have yeah. to carry this into the, the bonus show. I also we, we so we didn't get to my uh, my story about an, uh, an oil company that actually has me feeling a little bit conflicted. That will be your tease for the bonus show. If you want to know the, the rest of our thoughts on this story and hear about uh, this very confusing uh, oil uh, entrepreneur, you'll have to go to greenmajority.ca and download the podcast. But uh, other than that, thank you so much for joining us. That'll be uh, 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 if, if you all want to uh, shout out any web links or anything anything really quick before we go that would be great other than that thank you so much uh, atia and paul uh no web links that i can think of right now 350.org 
Yes, 350.org. <laughs> slash letter slash uh, act.350.org slash letter slash stop. No, reject hyphen kinder hyphen Morgan. All right. I'll put that yeah. on the website for you. Reject kinder Morgan. <laughs> and yeah. uh, your website, Paul. Just go to pauldor.com. Everything's there. That's D-O-R-E. Love it. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be right back with the bonus show if you're listening on the podcast. Otherwise, have a good green week, folks, and we'll see you all real soon. Great. Thank you. So that's it for the regular part of our show. I'm so glad I looked up and looked at the clock because I nearly went on another 10-minute tirade there. But it does continue into the bonus show. So we have a very good bonus show for you today. Thank you so much for listening. Again, a reminder, if you can, you're willing, you're able, and you'd like to help us out, you can become a Green Majority member at patron.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority. Enjoy the bonus show. We're now into the bonus show. Welcome back. Uh, I'm uh, still in studio. We have both of our guests stuck around uh, today as well, which is very appreciated. Um, and so I just wanted to wrap up uh, my sort of last thought about that, that I, we just got cut off uh, on the show. In fact, I'm glad I didn't get started on it because we only had like 90 seconds left and I totally would have talked 10 minutes into somebody else's show. So thank goodness for looking at my clock. Uh, so the last thing was just so that, yeah, so I, I checked the number again. There was 21 uh, actions that were taken that were, you know, all, essentially all of the recommendations and, and all of them got neutered. But what's the, what's the bigger story? So we were talking about our skepticism about the, um, about the details. But, I mean, at the end of the day, <clears throat> even, the, even the government itself is putting out um, some numbers basically saying, well, okay, yeah, we're not going to meet our targets, but, you know, this is the best we can do. Uh, but the, the more, I think, impactful part of that is the independent outsiders, including the Pemina Institute, which Pemina Institute I like to go to because they're not – they're not hippies, <laughs> not to say that anyone else is, but like they're, they're, I don't mean politically conservative, but they're very conservative in their tone. Um, they're sort of like the institutionalized version of sort of uh, Sapporo Berman style in the sense that their goal is not to necessarily affect change. Their goal is to be a part of the conversation so that they can act, get access to the data so they can put out a, you know, ideologically neutral fairest to what the science says review and not necessarily take the political action on it not because they they do or don't want to create political change but because their their job is simply sort of just to, to be a cold sober verification of what's true um and sort of leave the the activism what of what to be done with that more or less to others now that on a case-by-case basis that may vary um but that's largely what it is but even even they were not mincing their words when they were like yeah this is uh the even the estimates that the bc government is putting it out uh that are below what we were hoping for are extremely unrealistic they're in some cases we're saying they're not even sure how they really came up with those numbers uh there was one about uh, an allowance specifically just having to do with one of the natural gas uh pipelines that was you know their goal was to have 10 uh 10 point five uh, megatons of carbon uh, over that period, uh, and the plant itself took up nine point five so it 's like it's it, even a simple looking at the data is like this even what the government itself is claiming, which is not what they had uh, had, had promised uh, nor what anyone was hoping for uh, is is almost certainly extremely generous so we 're looking at you know the the continuation of you know the status quo of a plan that was admittedly and almost by design not good enough because the idea was okay let's start with this let's hammer out some of the details and then we'll build on it and what they've essentially come out this week and said is yeah we're not going to build on it screw you uh and one of the advances they said and i think the only one that 
it, it doesn't excuse what they've done. It doesn't, it doesn't make their plan good. But I think here's the first thing that maybe we can, we can chew on, and I'll get you guys to get your opinion, was one of the only thing that did run, ring a little bit genuine, not necessarily genuine, but at least valid, uh, to me was that they were saying is that, you know, we'd like to do more, but we need the other provinces to catch up to where we are first. Now, there's a whole bunch of BS in there around, you know, them being ahead on everything because they're not right. And they, they used to be, but they aren't anymore. So that's slightly bullshit. But it, as far as the carbon tax, I want to know how sympathetic you are to at least that portion of it. Why don't uh, why don't you start it to you? Um, so. The, the whole sentiment about let's let the rest of, of Canada catch up to BC. Um, yeah, definitely, uh, definitely share the, like, I, I definitely think that that's a little bit of bullshit. <laughs> um, and with regards to the BC carbon tax, I think what's important to recognize is that um, any any achievements from the carbon tax in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions are offset by uh, the fact that the, B- the BC government is creating an export economy that's pretty, that's pretty much a, a fossil fuel export economy. So by allowing pipelines to run through BC um, and exporting tar sands oil basically off of the coast of BC and also creating a new LNG industry where we're exporting LNG um, f- fracked natural gas um, – the BC government is basically exporting carbon that will be burned in other parts of the world that will increase greenhouse gas emissions, but that carbon is not actually accounted for in the carbon tax. It's only emissions that are in-house, that are, bur- that are burned within BC, within the borders of BC. So I think it is a little bit... Um, it's definitely a rhetorical game, and uh, this, yeah, this, this idea of the rest of Canada needing to catch up is, is completely... Um, yeah, it's... it's it's complete bullshit. It's not like BC is not actually doing anything that great. And in fact, the one thing that they are doing that is great um, or that was great um, is not actually all it's all it's built up to be because everything that they're doing is, is offset by all of this carbon that they're exporting that will then be burnt somewhere else and contribute to climate change just outside of BC. Yeah. And the uh, so the, the last thing I wanted to tie into this before getting to the Imaginia thing, um, and uh, Paul may have a, a thought about this part as well. Was that so? This was from a different story. It said this is the Desmog blog story, and it's it's quite a long article, as as many on Desmog blog tend to be, uh, over overly researched. Almost there's there's almost too much information here. I think to to make the point, uh, but on BC's um, page regarding their solar power and heating for your home on the on the on the government uh, page. Uh, it's it, it essentially cautions people against solar. And so what it's saying is uh, the, the so the, the title on the page is solar power and heating for your home and has a banner image of a uh, well, of course, who else is going to be a middle aged white man uh, putting on a sweater. And so there's very, very intentional imagery there. And what it's saying was, uh, I'll just read it really quickly. Solar energy is an affordable alternative from your home that can be used to help heat and power your home or business. However, the, the second sentence starts with a however. This is not going well. There are some important considerations around both view solar photovoltaic and solar thermal systems in BC that you should be aware of. And then goes on to essentially uh, lie about the payback periods. So they're claiming that it's 20 or more years and blah, 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 and this and that. And so basically it's like the, the government page for BC, the supposed climate leader BC, uh, is basically propaganda against solar. And the reason I say propaganda is that those numbers are complete nonsense. Uh, independent reviewers uh, have said it's closer t- uh, to seven, which maybe if you're you know under 25 and not about to buy a house, sounds like a very, very long time. But as a, you know, a, a person who's trying to buy a house and, and start a family, 
many home buyers or people buying homes uh, outside of the speculation market, um, seven year payback is that's incredible. And then seven year payback, and then after that, they're averaging uh, two thousand dollars a year credit after seven years. Like that's that's an amazing deal. But you you won't find that information uh, on on the government page. Uh, and what's more um, is there's um, uh, also uh, going out of the way to essentially like strip and they had an easy opportunity to incentivize this stuff. But I think like the ongoing story here, sorry, there was more in case you caught that. There was one more thing I wanted to get to and then I lost it. So I'll just admit that that happened. But uh, <laughs> but the, the, like the ongoing thing, the, the, the story about solar, too, is that, I mean, prices are, are dropping like insane rocks. And this, the, the context to take into this was. Prices are going out. This stuff is now, in some regions, uh, solar power is is better than coal. Just head-to-head, no incentives. Is that we have you know governments that are leaning against it in preference to their, their carbon uh, uh, economy. We have all sorts of uh, lies being put out by oil companies that are through these fake astroturf groups. We have this war against any sort of legislation that benefits it. We have massive publicly funded subsidies for the largest and most profitable companies in the world, the oil companies. A stripping where there ever existed any of any incentives for solar and they're still kicking their asses. They're still kicking their asses. Imagine if we actually tried for a second. Good God. Paul, what do you think? <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I think I'm going to maybe ask another stupid question. But um, what I was thinking about when, as you both have been going through all of, uh, all of these different things in this plan, first of all, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff. But it, even for me, it seems like uh, you said it was a few months late. Right. It it seems like the night before at two o'clock in the morning, they realized they had to do a presentation <laughs> the next day about this plan. And they just started using all of these buzzwords. And I don't know, like there, but there doesn't seem to be a strong commitment either to all of these things. Because, you know, I have heard of, obviously, I... I don't know. Does a carbon tax, does that work? I mean, all the things that you were talking about that is just sort of offsetting things over to somewhere else. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Everybody, they talk about public transit or infrastructure. That's another thing that everybody seems to want to say, yes, we need to do that because in the cities anyways. But then there's never really a solid plan on how to on how to do all that stuff. So it just it's feels – and why – would you not want to push something like solar power? It seems, from my understanding, is that okay, we're we are we're we're at with it at this point, but it keeps getting better and better and better, and makes more and more sense. So, isn't that a investment or something that you would want to uh, encourage people to participate in? I don't know. It just seems like they all maybe high fived each other afterwards after they used the word clean and and. Uh, all these different sort of buzzwords and when and and then it but to me also it seems like it's almost forgettable then it's just okay they've done that they did what they said they were going to do sort of is presented a plan but my dumb question is do they there's lots of people i'm sitting here with with two of them that have lots of knowledge and lots of wisdom and lots of information about all these things did they consult anybody uh, that are experts on this to say what like to get them in into a room and saying well what should we be doing and what should we it just seems like they got together and and did a lot of uh 
buzzwording and come out with what? I don't know. Nothing yeah. that new or special. Well, I, I like your I like your take on this that of sort of envisioning it as like some like you know uh, great. I was about to say OAC, and nobody now will know what that is. Oh, but, I know what that is. <laughs> uh, but like some sort of like you know grade twelve you know project to like leave high school, and somebody you know went out and partied, and then woke up the night before and realized they had their final paper due for their, you know whatever. I, I like that take of it. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I like where you went with that, Paul. That was good. Yeah, it it, it does fit. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, that would also give the the implication that they don't know exactly what they're doing, which I, I think the 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 jury is in on that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, neg- negligence, I, I think we're beyond claiming neg- negligence or ignorance on this one. Um, do you want to do you want to get a last word on that before I move to the other story, At- Atia? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it sounds like there's just like actually no way to hold them accountable to it as well. Like there's no way. Like I think, like you said, like I think it, it was very intentionally meant to be a little bit forgettable. Like there's no way that people can be like, oh, you didn't really do anything to address climate change because they can just turn back to their plan and they can be like, oh, well, we accomplished our goals. We got more than one one clean energy vehicle on the road. Like, you know, like it's just like there's no really metrics for accountability and whatever metrics are there are very weak. Uh, they could just t- tell us five years from now that they achieved their goal because they developed a strategy for reducing methane emissions. So... Yeah, it's just very, very flaky. Does kind of seem like it was developed last minute, night before. And I guess, like uh, you're saying, is that there's also no accountability in terms of somebody two years or three years saying, "Well, you made this promise, and you said that we are going to, you know, have if it's say if you get into specifics with numbers or anything, instead of just using uh, kind of vague terms like we are going to expand the, you know, uh, whatever aspect of it it is." there's no then they can just sort of say no we didn't say we didn't say any of that stuff so we're going to think really hard about this (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right so that that, that's a a good segue into my last one and so this one i'm i'm really keen to know what uh uh both a a a, a fellow you know part slash full-time activist and a and a casual activist i maybe i would call paul someone who's very interested but doesn't necessarily devote all of his days to this uh, to get both of your different perspectives on this and actually because of that I'm actually I'm going to start with you Paul mm. I, I don't want you to be influenced by either of us going <laughs> so I will go last Atiyah will go second I'm just going to introduce the story so a very interesting story uh, this is my uh, encourage you to read of the week I usually point out one story that I think is is, is worth reading more than the others um, and so this is a story it was put, it was, uh, put out on uh, the National Observer who's doing an excellent job I might add uh, and it's very interesting and, and I don't feel conflicted as I don't have an opinion but I feel very conflicted because it's more difficult to sort of make this argument, uh, make an argument against what's being done. And so that's why I'm so eager to hear what you guys are doing. So the, this, the story is about a uh, – uh, I would go ahead and say wonderful because our heart is definitely in the right place. I, I you know, We'll get to the rest of it later. But uh, the CEO, a serial entrepreneur uh, named Suzanne West – and uh, she's described as being, you know, defying the stereotypes of oil industry, whatever. And it has this wonderful detail about how she sort of, you know, uh, serial entrepreneur and, and bought and sold all these smaller uh, 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 carbon-based, you know, carbon economy uh, companies and whatnot. And uh, her, her whole, she's, you know, being interviewed here and, and she's talking about, uh, you know, how her th- whole thing, her, her idea around this is the idea of buying old houses and fixing them up, but with the oil industry. And so she, what she's doing was um, 
so she's yes, she's talking about how she 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 compares it to sprucing a, a sprucing up an old house, uh, and so she's trying to reimagine it. And so what they're doing, this company uh, Imagineas uh, or Imagine, is uh, doing things like uh, solar powered uh, pump jacks and. Uh, all sorts of really advanced and, and and not just implementing existing technology, but really pushing the edge of what's possible as far as uh, recapturing power and using uh, solar and everything to power the jacks to actually get the stuff out of the oil. So really affecting uh, very and and I think and I have zero skepticism that these are effective strategies because I know I already know that these technologies work. So yes, the carbon impact of mining these resources is definitely going down, uh, and and you know basically she has a. You know, and the opinion that you know we can basically do both. Uh, we can still continue to profit off carbon, but if we if we really clean up our act and really push the envelope, and I really do believe her. I have to say, I, I do believe her here that she's really wants to push the envelope really, really far in the direction of you know how can we make the resource uh, uh, process as green as possible. I, I believe her in a way that I do not believe for a second. Uh, any of the other claims uh, about you know Suncor this or that or when Enbridge talks, I t- I smell nothing but bullshit the entire time. This woman seems incredibly genuine, and I find her very interesting. So I have some more details, but just on that as a angle, and as this as like within the political understanding of sort of what the political atmosphere around the oil industry and just how ridiculously embedded it is with our politics. What your first blush is a of. Uh, what she's doing, the idea of trying to reinvent the oil industry, uh, and then also B, uh, the idea of sort of the, the, the conversation generally. So how do you feel about what's being done? Um, would that, does that, do, do you think that maybe that is a path that could be looking into it? Not because that will magically make climate change disappear, but because, well, maybe if everybody else got on board, maybe we're having a different conversation. So let, why don't we just start there with sort of just general impressions, Paul? Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm very interested in the psychological elements to a lot of this stuff. I I just had done a interview with uh, uh, I brought Rob Shirky back onto my podcast. I believe he's a friend of uh, the Green Majority. Yeah, been on the show many times uh, for for people just uh, as a refresher. The uh, the founder and executive director of Our Horizon, which is pushing for the uh, labels on gas pumps, uh, connecting the pump to problem, as you were, uh, of climate change. So I really, I, yes, and I, I really like, uh, we always get into the, the psychological component of what he's doing is he is sort of saying uh, he's trying to put these messages right into people's hands so they can see it for themselves. So it's a little bit more, it's not uh, kind of as he puts it downstream and sort of just saying, oh, it's because of these big, large corporations that this is the problem. So there's a bit of a disconnection and he's trying to make that personal connection. So uh, you know, and I'm also just always interested in how, um, uh, just as for example, a couple of years ago, I was in, I was working and traveling to Russia, and can't drink the water there. Got to drink bottled water, but there's not <laughs> recycling is not really big on their uh, priority list over there. So when you would open the the trash bins, they would be full of empty bottles. And I just remember like almost a physical reaction to it of like, this is wrong because you've been trained ever since recycling was introduced. You've been trained that, well, these bottles go over here and they're in recycling. So to me, I find this idea that you're talking about really interesting because it brings that maybe that psychological component into your home. Because if, you know, if you said to me, listen, if somebody came into my 
house or my place where I live, my space, and said, you know, we could like change this and this and this, and it will be more, uh, you know, environmentally conscious and like all of these things. I would, of course, and I would, you would feel better about it, and you would maybe want to tell people about it. And I, so I, I, I like that idea because I'm, like I said, the psychological component, I think it, uh, you know, when you bring can you bring something into somebody's space, I think it could have a very big impact. Mm. Atia. Um, yeah, I don't really buy it. Um, so I think this is like <laughs> I think this is like saying so for asbestos, if the equipment that we use to actually um, extract asbestos exposed workers to asbestos like removing that from the equipment so that the workers weren't directly impacted um but that we were still continuing to mine asbestos and sell it at, like justifying that for some reason um i don't I, like i don't think that the issue here like one of the issues is the fact that mining carbon itself is is contributing to climate change and has a lot of emissions but the bigger issue here is that we cannot continue to extract carbon if we um, intend to act on climate change because the science tells us that 80% of carbon reserves must stay in the ground if we want to avoid an average increase in global temperature by 2 degrees Celsius, which if we exceed that average increase in temperature, we're going to see catastrophic and irre irreversible warming. So that means that we need to be keeping carbon in the ground. Um, and really, essentially, like this is like this is like cleaning up an industry, but it's not about cleaning up the industry and cleaning up the the extraction practices. It's about really phasing out this industry altogether because this isn't something that we can continue to depend on. And in fact, um, the expansion of this industry is just antithetical to life itself. Um, so we can't we can't really think of this as like this is a, this is a marginal improvement at best. And maybe these are practices that we should implement, but the end goal should be phasing out the industry. It shouldn't be let's, let's clean this up so we can continue to expand because expansion is not an option if we want to listen to the science and, and the science, what the science tells us and listening to that science is not a radical concept. What's radical is to deny the laws of physics itself and to continue to expand this industry. See, I you know, I find uh, I totally understand everything that you're saying and I agree with you and it's like yes, this is we need to stop, you know, taking these things out of the ground. That's like full stop. But I guess where my my brain stops is how do you go from like basically where we are now to zero so quickly? Cuz I know maybe maybe it'll take a a lot of unfortunate things happening before we we can do that so i don't know is there a way to phase this stuff out or i don't know it's yeah. a big question i'm not asking you to answer all I of think, that to yeah. solve the world <laughs> solve the climate change problem right now how Go. much time <laughs> how much time do you have paul yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think step one is like stop expanding you know like what we have right now is enough and let's try to phase what phase out what we do have but we can't continue to like what oil companies are doing right now is that they're searching for more carbon and they're finding ways to extract reserves that have not actually been tapped into yet. So continuing to expand is actually like like basically creating more of a demand, which is like the absolute the first thing that we need to do is stop expanding and then think about what phasing out will look like. And phasing out is possible. I think just to speak to one 
one approach to thinking about this. Uh, Bill McKibben, the founder of 350.org, recently wrote about how we need to declare war on climate change. So this is a new article um, that he just published. And it just basically talks about how we have seen economic transformation before. And we saw it during World War II. We can transform our economy basically overnight to do something else and function in a different way. And we've done that when we've been under threat of war. And essentially, you know, if we were to declare war on on climate change, we could transform our economy like we did for World War II. So I, I strongly recommend that read as well to readers. Yeah. All right. So my my thing on this, so I'll, t- I'll tell you why I even use the word conflicted because Tia may even be wondering why I'm why I said conflicted about this at all because it, it seems you're you were pretty cut and dry about it, right? So the, here's the only thing I was wondering, and it was a, it was a it was a brief moment, and I and I actually got over it. And I'll explain why, but I'm I'm pretty sort of just like hard on my sleeve about how my brain works on air here. So just the first thing I went to was, you know, because it's sort of like getting to what Paul's is not. Not a con- well, maybe maybe it is a concession. Maybe concession is the right word. But in that sense of the like, you know, we're not moving fast enough. Uh, so yes, it's not ideal. But in lieu of a of another realistic option, by realistic I don't mean is it possible? Because of course, Tia, what you were saying is, that of course, it's possible to do this. Was but but politically possible as in are we? Is it feasible with with the pieces on the on the board that we have now to get to where we need to go? Uh, you know, would we? ends justify the means get to where we want to go faster by pushing the entire industry in this direction and by by you know by not necessarily you know environmentalists saying yes any comp anything that uses this technology is fine but by using them as a as a test case to say hey look well at least what they're doing is possible so in the meantime you have to do this someone's already proven it's economically viable in the meantime, while we're fighting for even better change, why can't we just say that you're now mandated to do it? You know, so their advantage is now the law. Uh, you have to do all that stuff, and then we'll keep on the path. We we're, you know, so not get off that train, but just make a brief stop at a station to say, okay, by the way, now they've proved that it's possible to be better. So while we're working out the rest of it, you now have to do that. Um, so. And then I even backed off of that because I think there could be an argument to be made from that from a very sort of a, a practical argument there. Um, the reason I don't even buy that is sort of what you already said and where I dialed back from it, which is I'm, I'm going to tell a really quick story here and we're, we're nearly out of time. But, but let me just tell a really quick story, which was there's a, a TSSS, which is the Toronto uh, Sustainable Speaker, uh, Sustainability Speaker Series, which gets CEOs and all sorts of bigwigs to come in and do talks. And it's not exclusive in the sense that like you have to you know, like know somebody famous, but you know, it's it's it goes out to a certain particular type of usually corporate type folks. So it's a lot of executives and stuff that go. Uh, the speaker in this particular time, I've been to several times, and the Brad's are not the guy who runs. It's been on our show. Um, you know, they're, they're, in this case, I, I don't remember all three of them, but they're one of the people I remember was the uh, the CEO of Desjardins Bank, right? So like some fairly inaccessible to the public sort of folks there and they were giving a presentation and, and the other guy it wasn't the Desjardins uh, bank woman uh, but it was somebody else there I think it was from it might have been from an oil company but was saying uh, you know, it was basically gave this presentation on all these advances they've done. And look, we're we're three percent better than we were last year, and we're on track to be five percent better than we were last year next year. And at the end of it, I stuck up my hand and I said, "Look, this all sounds very fantastic, and I'm I'm glad that you seem to think that this is an issue that should be important. But you know, have you or have you ever done? Has anyone ever done any calculation between where you are?" And not where you are going to be next year based on your current plan, but where we need to be. Because I said, unless you hit this magic number, which even that magic number is in question, but let's say it's two degrees, unless your plan equals and this will get us to two degrees, 
your 3% or 5% or 9% is fucking irrelevant. It's fucking meaningless. It doesn't mean a goddamn thing because drowning in four inches of water is not really that different than drowning in six inches of water. You're still drowning. And they really didn't get it. And it, like it really, like I could see most of the crowd got it. Most of the audience kind of either went like, well, come on now, you know, ease off on them. But like, we agree with you, but like, come on now, don't, you don't need to be confrontational about it. And the other half of them were kind of secretly snickering into their shirts, not wanting to be caught. Because that's sort of what we're looking at here, right? As you said, we have, a, we have an end target. And unless your plan equals getting us to that target, it doesn't mean a goddamn thing. And so my, my final comment on this, and, and then I'll be done if you guys want to have a final thing. But basically we'll be done with this was that it, the, reading the story actually made me really sad. And it made me, the reason it made me sad was because here is obviously an extremely talented, very well-educated, smart, uh, entrepreneurial woman who's doing really cool things within the context of her industry. And... It just makes me so sad that she's wasting her time on something that I think is utterly meaningless when she's clearly brilliant. And if she was like just doing something a little better, like I just I feel like her talents are being wasted. And it really made me sad because I think there's a lot of really smart people who are really talented people who are capable of such greatness, who are wasting their time trying to like like revive this dead corpse that is the fossil fuel industry. And what, what amazing things could they be doing? You know, what amazing things could the folks who worked on the on the atom bomb have done if they'd been asked to work on, you know, radical life extension or curing cancer? It's one of those things. It's a what if thing. And it just really at the end of the day, after I really sought with it and processed it, I nearly started crying because I was like, what how many more people are there are there like this woman who are clearly capable of so, clearly so competent, so brilliant, so so enthusiastic to go out and change the world. If only they had a better idea of what changing the world meant, where where could we be? Uh, and so that's, I, I just wanted to sort of explain my feelings on it. I, we're nearly at 30 minutes here. We're ridiculously over time. Thank you so much for sticking around guys. Uh, please take another opportunity to either have a, a quick final thought and then uh, redress with your, your websites or any other links you want. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on this show. It's been great to talk to both of you and I'm excited to listen to this afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So yeah, we'll we'll post the uh, if you'll email me the 350 link you mentioned on the air oh, program. Yeah. We'll we'll post that online as well, and may, maybe the uh, Dakota video too. I can we can post that up. Uh, Paul, where can we listen to more of your stories? Uh, you can find out uh, everything you need to know just on my website, pauldor.com. That's it. And as an additional tease for your website, Paul, I did a story for one of your events quite some time ago uh, that I will not talk about on the show at all. But if you're really curious. You can go and find a secret story I don't tell on your website. Yes, and you, uh, there's a whole episode featuring uh, just you on, a, on our podcast as I'm, well. I'm so honored. Yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank All you. Right. Thank you so much. For, and to our listeners, thank you so much for listening and sticking around with us for this extended, but I think extremely valuable and very enjoyable, at least from my point of view, uh, episode of The Green Majority. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, and we'll see everybody real soon. Thank you.